Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 228. My name is Aurel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Uh, Lord, we uh, recognize once again, as we do week after week, that having these weekly meetings, these um, studies together, is very exciting, and it's uh, very informative. Um, I like to call it intellectual nutrition, and it's a great way to fellowship with one another uh, via the medium of the internet and things like that. But Lord, ultimately, um, all of this is fruitless without your spirit, without your power, without your um, guiding us and leading us and directing us and opening our hearts and minds to understand the topics. Also, we realize that um, ultimately these are for the purpose of glorifying your name and building up your kingdom and um, preparing ourselves uh, for the return of your son, Yeshua, the Messiah. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, for the challenge that it presents, for the the information that must go out because there are so many yet to under hear and and know and understand that jesus is the only real way to lasting peace and so may we have that goal in mind as we're studying as we are uh, working through the topics as we're seeking to better understand you um lord may we just uh be in a place where we are utilized by you so um bless you lord for all of these wonderful opportunities these doors that you're opening thank you for your continued provision and for your protection for us as your people uh you've demonstrated love for us uh over and over again and uh for that reason lord we say that we love you and that we're going to keep trusting in you and we'll be careful lord to give you the praise and the glory but shame yeshua oh main Already, it is time to jump in once again to this topic of eschatology, biblical study of end time events. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm the teacher of this particular topic. We've been working our way for this first segment of my live internet studies, which is a total of an hour and a half. If you catch the entire uh, video and audio, teaching then the first hour is given over to this eschatology topic and the second 30 minutes is given over to an apologetic section where we deal with issues of trinity so looking at your screen right now we're in the yellow slice topic seven excurses the islamic the islamic antichrist per joel richardson and i've already um prepped you for this multiple times so i don't have to keep reminding you that even as christians who are who are, don't have really any first hand first person interest or understanding of islam we're not really undertaking this topic so that we can better understand islam and muslims and things like that except to the degree that it causes us to realize that it's that it's this it's this great mission field before us as christians as believers those of us who know the truth name the name of yeshua jesus as our lord well then islam represents a mission field but other than that we're we're talking about this topic of the antichrist right we already talked about robert van campen's kind of european model version of the antichrist where he rises up out of maybe a unified europe or revived roman uh, part of the world and brings his agenda to the world ultimately whether you take the the european model or the islamic model like joel richardson ultimately you still kind of end up in the same place where this one world new world order one world government one world religion one world monetary system etc etc one world persecution tribulation is going to happen you ultimately end up in the place where we're dealing with this wicked ruler that the bible has already given us very very many uh precursors or prefigures or ant uh, um antecedent 
figures from history, right? Remember we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes, and we've already seen uh, various pharaohs and Nebuchadnezzars come and go, Hamans, and the other Caesars and other wicked world rulers. And then in our own kind of modern age, we've seen people the likes of Hitler, Mussolini, um, and and other wor world leaders who have, who have made it their goal to sort of subjugate all other people groups underneath them. And that's what Antichrist is going to do. And so I'm not really concerned that people aren't wholesale on board with the idea that the Antichrist could be from Islam or within Muslim ranks, etc., etc. That's fine if you're a Christian and you don't hold that perspective. My uh, push, my goal, my, my aim is to stimulate thought in this particular area to help you realize that there's a strong possibility, and I think even a strong probability, that this could be the particular model that the Antichrist decides to utilize, or that Satan decides to utilize uh, with the Antichrist as his puppet to bring his one world agenda, at least the religious aspect, because Islam is not known to be a very highly political machine as far as I understand, but it is within the thought of Muslim leaders and their, pro their own prophets and specialists and students of the Quran to look for and usher in a one world Islamic religion, right? That's, that is within their eschatological worldview. So let's look at Joel Richardson's notes. We left off last week with a quote from the book of Revelation. I just thought I'd back up and read that entire quote and then go from there. This is chapter five of his book, The Islamic Antichrist, which is available in a few different places. Look at the lit description in the video and follow the links to whichever one suits your needs. Here's what Joel Richardson has to say. The great dragon was hurled down. Of course, we're talking about Satan, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So this is John writing in the book of Revelation. Remember, it's the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah, as was given to John. It's not the revelation of John. It's not John's revelation. The book of Revelation, which this study really represents a book of Revelation study. We just haven't gotten to it yet, right? You looked at my topical index there. We're working our way towards a chapter-by-chapter -chapter look at the book of Revelation. These are just the kind of preliminary topics that are going to prep us for that. But remember, John writing in the book of Revelation is being shown all of these details of events that are largely future from the futurist model of the book of Revelation that I myself am subscribing to. You might have heard of one of the other three of the four primary ways of interpreting the book of Revelation. I'll flash a little graphic on the screen and post. There's in no particular order. There's the preterist view, the historicist view, the futurist view, the one that I'm holding to, and then for some reason I'm drawing a complete blank on what the fourth one is. The idealist view, I believe it is. I'll look at the graphic later on, but I believe that it's those four. Uh, preterist, historicist, idealist, and futurist. And the two kind of polar ends are the preterist and the futurist. And preterism largely believes that most of the events of the book of Revelation took place in the first century, particularly around the year 70 when the temple was destroyed, and then some of those events spilling over into the years closer to 130 when Jerusalem was its, itself was sacked and the Jewish people were ex expelled, exiled. 
yet most preterists hold to a 70 AD event around the destruction of the temple and things like that. I don't subscribe to that particular perspective, but I recognize its strengths and weaknesses and try to glean from it what details I can. But largely, I'm a futurist view, meaning when John penned these words, I'm expecting most of them to take place in the future. And the really kind of urgent aspect to all of this is that as we get closer and closer to these events unfolding, we are largely going to get more and more detailed. So that's not scary. It's kind of exciting that as we get closer and closer to the time of these events, that the Spirit is revealing more and more and helping those of us who are watching for the events to have more and more understanding. Because uh, it's like anything that you, as you get closer to it, you get a, a clearer view of what's going on. So, continuing through John's revelation, or um, the revelation that he penned, Yeshua's revelation given to John, he, the dragon, pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly. We're reading words that John penned for us that are really a description of what's going to be taking place close to what we would call the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years of intense human effort to magnify man's rebellion against God to thwart the plans of God to establish his Messiah on his holy hill and to usher in the messianic kingdom that Yeshua is going to rule from? Well, Satan realizes that he's been given a short amount of time because he's thrown out of heaven at this point, and he's on earth with great wrath, and so he goes after the people group that he's always gone after historically, and that's Israel. But this time, it's as we begin to read, um, that he's going to go after not just the, wo the woman who's Israel, but let's keep reading. She was given the two wings of a great eagle. She might fly into the place prepared for her in the desert where John says she would be taken care of for how long? For a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days. And so we know this is a set fixed time that corresponds to the last half of the seven years. And so she's given a measured amount of protection from the satan from from the antichrist's wrath of course this is satan incarnate virtually right satan's puppet out of the serpent's reach then the dragon watch this was enraged at the woman which is israel and went off to make war with who against the rest of her offspring and watch this description those who obey god's commandments and hold to the testimony of jesus this is a description of not just Jewish people, not just Messianic Jews, right, who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus, but this is a description of genuine Christians. This is interesting that this is near the midpoint of the week, because those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture model, who believe that the church will have been whisked away, raptured away from planet Earth prior to any of these events taking place, to be sure, at the, before the seven-year peace treaty is signed with Israel and before the seven-year kicks off, how do they explain or interpret the presence of those who hold to the testimony of Jesus? It's clearly a description of folks who are Christian in that regard. So, 
I hold to a pre-wrath model. We'll talk more about that in time. This model puts the rapture not at the beginning of the seven years, not even at the midpoint, and not at the end like post-trib. Instead, pre-wrath puts the rapture sometime after the midpoint, but before the end. So you could say at the three-quarter mark, something like that. So sometime during the in the middle of the of the of the final three and a half years. So, looking at these details here in the book of Revelation, the uh, address, by the way, is Revelation chapter 12, and uh, you can see all the verses listed on your screen there. Most of chapter 12 is what we read there. Let's now begin to pick up Joel Richardson's notes regarding the events that we just read about. Here's his kind of interpretation of what's gonna what we just read we see that satan joel says is enraged at the woman israel and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring those who obey god's commandments and hold to the testimony of jesus that's the quote from revelation he says that israel's other offspring are those christians who indeed obey god's commandments and hold to the testimony of jesus and i think that's a very straightforward interpretation of the words that we just read and i can kind of run with that right that's basically what i just said joel continues this is the only passage that makes specific reference to satan making a direct target of both jews and christians together and he adds we know that this passage is speaking specifically of the end times right because it mentions twice in this particular passage the three and a half year period which is 1260 days and a time times and half a time elsewhere it talks about this time frame as 42 months which we're going to read here in a moment so he talks about this is the period that the antichrist will have authority to wage war against the saints so what we're noticing from prophecy is that there's going to come a time on planet earth when satan will concentrate his efforts through his puppet antichrist and the false prophet that we're going to be reading about later on satan will concentrate his efforts on persecuting the people of god resulting in what most prophecy experts call the great tribulation which i myself subscribe to as well in this regard i don't see the great tribulation spanning the entire seven years like many bible teachers are teaching or many christians have been taught instead i believe that yes the seven years is a time period that we need to watch for on the calendar and for those of us who will be alive on planet earth when this seven years kicks off which which could be very very soon by the way we'll talk about that in time during the seven-year period the first part of the 70th week the first half are given over to what yeshua describes in matthew mark and luke during his all of it discourse with his disciples as largely what he describes as birth pangs the beginnings of the intense time on planet earth when there will be trouble jacob's trouble tribulation for israel uh, uh tribulation for those who want to continue believing in the one true god etc et remember by the midpoint of the week according to the apostle paul's letter to the thessalonians the antichrist will have taken his seat in the temple declaring himself to be the one and true god on planet earth so it'll be kind of an incarnation declaration of himself as very god among men at the same time he will cease or put a halt to the sacrifices that will be ongoing at that point in time in israel in some sort of 
reconstructed temple environment, maybe a tabernacle or portable tent structure, a tent of meeting type edifice, or maybe the full-blown temple that will have already been uh, constructed or is still under construction, or maybe just a sectioned or cordoned off part of the Temple Mount, maybe his agreement with the Arab powers, Muslim powers, uh, who control the Temple Mount currently, will have already reached an agreement to allow Israel to build some form of sacrificing structure up there, so there's an altar where they can begin sacrificing. Well, he's going to bring all that to a halt in the midpoint of the week, declare himself to be God, and then begin to take over Jerusalem as his political capital, his religious capital, perhaps maybe his military capital, although I don't see that happening in mass. I think he'll probably have most of his military weaponry parked somewhere else in a larger location, somewhere where he can keep it hidden from the world's view, somewhere where it's more defensible than Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will become one of his primary headquarters. And we're also expecting him to, at this point in time, begin his intense persecution of Jewish people, a siege on Jerusalem. There's a campaign that's described by Robert Van Campen as the Jerusalem campaign that takes place probably right around that time at the midpoint of the week. There will be two more campaigns after that, the Jehoshaphat campaign, and then finally the, the Armageddon campaign. But the point, the point I'm trying to emphasize is that at the midpoint of the week, the Great Tribulation should ramp up. If he wasn't persecuting Jews and Christians and anyone who opposes him at that point in time, he certainly will be doing it openly and globally at this point in time. We know that the mark of the beast and the implementation of the setting up of the image that's described in Revelation chapter 13, I believe, will also, or chapter 17, I get those two chapters confused, but I think it's 13. Go with me on this one. Let's say it's 13. I'm pretty sure it's 13. We know that he's going to be... Um, demanding worldwide worship and restricting buying and selling and movement of any types of merchandise around the world unless you have this mark on your hand or your forehead or the number of his name and of course you must worship the image this could be one giant image or it could be multiple images the greek allows for either one so let's read about the activities that are going to be taking place around this midpoint of the week. These are some more quotes from the book of Revelation. John writes, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for how long? 42 months. Does that mean that the tribulation will last the entire 42 months? I don't believe so. My understanding of prophecy, this is in correspondence with words that Yeshua already recorded in the Matthew Olivet Discourses, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as what Daniel already, in antecedent theology form, gave us way back in the book of Daniel, is that the intense persecution that the Antichrist is going to be performing against God's people will not last the entire seven years, nor will it last the entire 42 months or three and a half years. Rather, Yeshua said it best that unless those days were cut short, no flesh would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. And in so saying, he's letting us know that even though God gives 42 months for the program of Satan to run its course, which it will, right? Remember, the Antichrist and the false prophet will not be defeated by Yeshua until the end of the seventh week at the Battle of Armageddon. 
So that's three and a half years later from the midpoint. And yet the tribulation will start around the midpoint, the intense part of it, the most heated part, and will go as long as Satan is given free reign to persecute the people of God. Remember, Daniel already said that he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High, this Antichrist figure. He's going to be given a place and a time to persecute the people of God for the sake of refining the people of God and bringing him through, bring us, I say them, but us, through the crucible so that we can know truly, once and for all, who is our God and who is our Messiah. And we will... We will hold this belief to the point of being beheaded, to the point of losing our lives. So that's how we will overcome. We will not overcome by defeating Satan ourselves. We will not overcome by avoiding death, even though Israel, the woman, has been given a place to flee into the desert for 42 months as well. This isn't going to change the fact that two-thirds of Israel are prophesied to die, to, to be wiped out by the Antichrist at this point in time. So this 42 months is really the overall time frame, I understand it, for the tribulation and the, the program of the devil to run its course. But the tribulation itself will be cut short by the rapture of the people of God from planet Earth, as well as the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath, not the wrath of Satan. So what we call the day of the Lord. The rapture and the day of the Lord, as I understand it, are back-to-back -back events. They're the same event, just described from two different angles. One is one side of the coin, one is the other side of the coin. And depending on which side of the coin you're looking at and facing, it's either disastrous for you if it's if you're on the wrath side, or it's redemption for you if you're on the rapture side okay let's keep reading john he speaking about uh, the devil and the antichrist he opened his mouth to blaspheme god and to slander his name and his dwelling place right that's there in jerusalem and those who live in heaven right that's people in, in god's uh arena he this antichrist figure was given power and satan to make war against the saints again that's what daniel already prophesied and to conquer them that's the point i want to highlight is that the reason it's tribulation the reason it's it's troublesome and a time of trouble for jacob is because god himself is going to allow satan using the antichrist god is going to allow persecution of god's people remember for the most part, national Israel is in rebellion against God because of their blindness towards their Messiah, their rejection of Jesus, and thus they will be ripe for the deception of the Antichrist that took place right at the beginning of the week where he duped them into signing some false peace agreement between them and their Arab-slash-Muslim neighbors. So Israel is in a place where she's ripe for deception because of her rejection of Jesus. So she needs the persecution from the Antichrist to iron out the wrinkles in her dress, to heat up the metal and cause the dross to rise to the surface so it can be scooped away so that the pure metal remains. God is out to purify his people, Israel, and in order to do that, he's going to put them through the crucible. He's going to put them into the very fiery pit and allow them to suffer a measured amount of persecution. He's not going to wipe them out. He's already promised way back in Genesis chapter 12 through Abraham that he would not wipe them out. The promises given to the forefathers is the anchor for Israel to realize that she will forever be God's people, God's bride. 
So don't get it in your mind that Satan's going to uh, defeat the people when it talks about he's given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. It's not a type of end to Israel, like those who are in replacement theological camps or supersessions would like to imagine. No, it's just to purify them. At the same time, the church is largely at this point in time in compromise as well. Look at the state of affairs in church today. We're only one or two steps away from the world in terms of moral standards and our ethics. We've always been in this place where we have had one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And that's not the place that God wants us. God wants us to be white hot for Him and His coming Messiah. And so the church has to also go through this tribulation time period before she's raptured in order to prove who is the genuine Christian and who is the professing Christian. So, Satan is going to have a measured amount of success against the saints and conquer them. The saints there includes not just Jewish people, the woman, but also includes those who name the name of Jesus, even if they're just professing only. There are a lot of people who are going to uh, jump ship and say, mm, I was just saying I was a Christian. No, really, I'm not. You know, Mr. Antichrist, please don't persecute me. I'll take the mark. I'll, I'll worship your be worship the image. I'll bow down to whatever you want me to do. Just don't take my life or take my property or whatever, whatever. Take my money. Right. That's really. And then at that point in time, they will have demonstrated their true allegiance before Satan and before God, and God will then know, and they will know, and the rest of the world will know, aha, you were just Christian in name only. You weren't really one of God's. So let's keep reading the book of Revelation. And he, this this Antichrist, was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And that's Revelation 13, 5 through 7. So don't be confused into thinking that this is just some sort of Israel-centric issue that's going to take place in the Middle East far away from wherever you happen to live in the West or whatever part of the world you're listening to this audio teaching or watching this YouTube video from. Just get it out of your mind. Once Satan infills his puppet Antichrist at the midpoint of the week and pours all of his efforts into the Antichrist's if, uh, Antichrist's dealings here on planet Earth, once that takes place, remember Satan's kicked out of heaven at that point. So he can't get back into heaven, so he's got this great wrath. So he pours all of his energy into his puppet Antichrist. Once that takes place, the Antichrist is going to ramp up whatever program he's already been cooking at this point in time, which probably for the first part of the 70th week will largely be centered in the Middle East part of the world, perhaps involving parts of Turkey, Russia, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, the parts of Europe that would include uh, the part that we recognize as the European Union. Perhaps most of those places will already have been feeling the the intense programs and and machinations of the Antichrist, the manipulations that this man will have been doing in the political world scene, in the financial world scene. So maybe those parts of the, of the world will be more impacted at first, but at the midpoint, he's going to take this thing global. He's going to go international. And so that's why John says he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. That's language that indicates that this is a worldwide uh, event that's going to spill out into the rest of the world. And no matter where you live in the world, technology has now made it possible 
for for basically a very few amount of people to control the entire world. And we know that the Antichrist's eighth beast empire will be a, a collection of ten nations that will give their direct allegiance to him, a ten-nation coalition, right, corresponding to the ten toes in Daniel chapter 2 and the ten horns in Daniel chapter 7, and then having a one-to-one -one correlation to those ten nations in Revelation chapter 17, the ten crowns and the ten rulers, etc., etc. So, let's keep reading Joel Richardson. He says, the prophet Daniel also saw that the Antichrist would have this authority to wage a successful war against, quote, the saints, end quote. Saints is also translated as holy ones in some translations of the Bible. Joel says it speaks primarily of the true followers of Jesus who know and serve the one true God. I find that quite interesting that when we look at Daniel that we're going to quote here, Daniel uses this phrase, saints, which from Daniel's perspective in his time would have naturally been associated with the people of Israel, particularly those who did not compromise in their faith in Israel's God. And yet, nevertheless, they still got swept up within the exile off to Babylon, right? Daniel would have been a prime example. Daniel was not a rebel. He was not a an apostate Jew at that time. He was not someone who doubted God. Rather, he had and demonstrated his genuine faith in God right from the very beginning. If you've read through the book of Daniel, a very short book, 12 chapters, right at the very beginning, Daniel's purposing in his heart that he's not going to defile himself with the king's delicacies. He and his three friends, right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have this incredible faith in God so much so that they are not going to bow to the image that's uh, uh, set up before them. Even at the pain of, point of death, right, they get thrown into the fiery, fiery furnace because they refuse to apostatize. They refuse to uh, back down under the face of pressure and they refuse to give up their faith in God and so they get carted off to Babylon along with those who were rebels and those who were in a position where they'd broken faith with God and the whole reason why God had allowed Babylon to conquer Jerusalem and do something that no other nation at that point in time had done. So the holy ones, the saints that Daniel writes about, are people like himself. They're holy ones within Israel's ranks. But what's interesting is by the time we get to the writings of the Apostolic Scriptures, we now understand that this phrase, saints, includes not just righteous from within Israel, but it includes righteous from the nations as well, those from the Gentiles who have been grafted into Israel's ranks via their faith in Messiah, they don't become is they don't become Jews, but they do become Israelites in in the regard that they are covenantally bound to a relationship with God through His Son Yeshua. They become the bride of Messiah. We we see this as the remnant of Israel, those who are truly naming the name of Yeshua, both from Jews and from Gentiles. So, so now this phrase, saints, we who are Christians, Gentiles, when we read through the book of Daniel, we now read it through with, with the understanding of the apostolic scriptures in view. We now realize that the saints does include Gentiles. Daniel might not have seen that from his perspective at the time because the mystery of the Gentiles, the mystery of the gospel, was still something that was hidden to the prophetic writers of his day. Let's read what Daniel did record for us. Speaking of that Antichrist, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. 
And this also fits in, Joel's going to talk about, with Islamic eschatology seeking to change everything over to Sharia law, right? If the Antichrist comes out of a Muslim model or an, an Islamic model, Sharia law might be, might be that ingredient or element that Daniel was referring to here prophetically. Daniel continues, the saints... Remember, Daniel wrote from the perspective that these were Israelites, that they were Jewish people. Daniel was probably not understanding that this would include people from the surrounding nations who were grafted into Israel, because that was part of the mystery that was hidden from the Old Testament writers to be revealed only in the time frame of the Apostolic Scriptures during the time of Yeshua and afterwards. Specifically, Paul was given the primary task of revealing this mystery to the Gentiles. That's why he was called the Apostle to the Gentiles. So, the saints that Daniel describes, probably not understanding that this includes Gentiles. But now, when we read through the New Testament, we understand that this does include genuine Gentile believers. So, the saints will be handed over. And I, I keep highlighting this. Let me just interject. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I don't want you to read through the book of Daniel and go, Oh, Daniel was just talking about the Jewish people. Right? This isn't going to affect me as a Gentile Christian because it says the saints, and the saints were talking about the Israelites, so it doesn't include me. No, you're misunderstanding the mystery of the gospel if that's your mindset. You're misreading the prophecy if you think that the saints who are loyal to God in Daniel's day are one people group, and the saints who are loyal to God in today's uh, time frame is a different people group, but yet prophecy is running the span between when Daniel wrote and when we are living as well. Remember, Daniel's words were written beforehand, but they apply to the days that we live in, which are the last days. Okay, so Daniel says that the saints will be handed over to him, speaking of the Antichrist. How long? For a time, times, and half a time. So that's somewhat comforting to know that it's not the entire 70th week that Satan will have a successful campaign against the people of God, persecution over them. It doesn't say that the saints will be handed over to him for a time, a time, a time, a time, a time, a time, and a time. That's seven times, right? Or something like that. It doesn't say that. It just says a time, times, and half a times, which we've already talked about in previous studies, is best understood to be three and a half years. A time there being one year, the second times being uh, two years, so time and times, that's three years, then half a time being half of a year, so three and a half years. And that's, of course, from Daniel 7.25. So, let's read Joel Richardson's commentary on this passage that we just read. Again here, Joel says, we see the reference to the three and a half year period that Antichrist will persecute those who resist him. It's like the old Star Trek Borg Concept, resistance is futile. From the Antichrist perspective, resistance will be futile. You either take the mark or you die. You either take the number of his name or you die. You either worship the Antichrist or you die. You bow down to the image or you die. So this concept that the Antichrist is going to be utilizing in the last day, excuse me, in the last day, days where he is forcing worship of himself fits nicely within the eschatological worldview that Islam is already describing in their religious writings, which would include either the Quran or the Hadith, right, or a combination of those two. They have this model of, and they've already used this, we've seen this in history, of convert 
or die. Now, of course, I mentioned last week that Christianity has borrowed that model a few times as well during the Crusades, during the Inquisitions, etc., etc., convert to Christianity or die. But we've also quickly commented that this is not the biblical way of bringing people into the family of God and bringing people into the kingdom. Jesus was not about forced conversions and putting people to the sword if they didn't follow his ways. That was not the way of God. That's not the way of our Messiah. And yet Islam doesn't have the same worldview. They believe that it is okay to put infidels and unbelievers to the sword, who, those who don't yield to the uh, regime of their religious rulers and, and uh, their one-world uh, Islamic program. Again, I'm not trying to generalize all Muslims who hold this belief. I'm simply saying that this is something that the Quran teaches and that these teachings are present within Islamic religious circles. And thus, we can say that these teachings are present and even though maybe many Muslims might be opposed to that concept of you know, forced conversion or or jihad or something to that effect. You know, they're they're non-violent type of Muslim peoples, and praise God for that perspective. We need more Muslims like that. But the fact that those details exist within their religious writings is an alarming detail that we need to be aware of. So let's keep reading Joel Richardson's notes here. We've got a good amount of time. I'm looking at my time here, and I'm just doing great, making great time. Joel says, the Bible is clear then, that we just read Daniel, the Bible is clear then, the Antichrist will specifically target those who resist his attempts to establish his religion over the earth. This is true, I might add, whether you hold to a European model of the Antichrist, coming out of Europe, coming out of a revived Roman Empire, coming out of some form of Gentile world power where he exerts his influence over the Middle East, brokers a peace treaty, but he himself is not either Israeli or Muslim, right? He's a, he's a third-party member. Or you hold to, like Joel Richardson does, the Islamic Antichrist model where the Antichrist rises up out of Islamic ranks. He is viewed as a religious figure, the 12th Imam, the Mahdi that we've been talking about. And this Antichrist figure seeks to usher in some form of one world religion and world peace, but it's seen through the lens of the Islamic eschatology. And so either way, it's his, his attempt to establish a one world religion are going to succeed for a short time. Whether we believe it's an Islamic world religion or some form of ecumenical religion where all of them are smashed together. Remember that, that graphic I put on the screen last week? Coexist. You guys have seen these bumper stickers where all the religions kind of agree to agree to agree with one another peaceably, as it were, to kind of stop fighting amongst themselves. This would include Islam in that model. Uh, I don't know exactly in the European model what the one world religion is supposed to look like. Is it supposed to look like Christianity? It's supposed to look like Islam, Judaism, you know, Buddhism, like like over here in the East where I live. Uh, in the in the in the um in Asia where I live, or is it supposed to look like Hinduism, like in, in in India and things like that? Is it supposed to look like some form of New Age religion, like we see in other parts of the world? Is it supposed to look like some form of an African religion? The details aren't given in the Bible, but what we do know is that there will be some form of one world religion that's 
utilized by the Antichrist up until a point in time to where he, and we're, we're, we're describing what, is, what the Bible calls the mystery Babylon, the woman in Revelation chapter 17, the one who's riding the beast. Up until a certain point in time, Antichrist and her will have some, what we call mutual agreement between one another to benefit one another. The religion benefits from the Antichrist, and the Antichrist benefits from the religion. But truly, the Antichrist isn't interested in this religion. At some point in time, his god is a god of fortresses, like, like Daniel describes. His god is a god of military might and military power and resources that keep him in power from a military perspective. That's his true god. And so, he doesn't really care about religion. He'll just co-opt it for a while and allow it to exist to suit his needs until up until a point, like the book of Revelation talks about in Revelation chapter 17, near the end of the chapter, he and those ten nation coalition that are behind him that will be backing him, they will, and the Bible uses these, this language, they will hate the woman and burn her. So, even if you hold to an Islamic model or a European model, doesn't matter, when it comes to the one world religion that's established over all the earth, like Joel's describing here, at some point in time, the Antichrist and the Ten Nations will throw that part, that, that aspect of their one world government off because it won't serve their needs. And indeed, the entire world isn't really interested in religion anyway. They just want uh, their power and their position and their military might and their money. Their money, their money, their money, right? Money, 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 show me the money. All right, let's read Joel Richardson from his book. Let's keep reading here. He says, from the book of Revelation, as well as the prophet Daniel, we see that the two groups that Satan is most enraged against are the Jews and the Christians. And I'm sorry I keep interjecting, but as Joel's about to describe, we're going to find that in the Islamic model, it's those two people groups who are already targeted as infidels. And the Islamic religious writings refer to these people as dog, pigs and dogs. I can't remember which one's which. I don't know if the Jews are the pigs and the Christians are the dogs, or if the Jews are the dogs and the Christians are the pigs. I think it's that the Jews are the pigs and the Christians are the dogs. But they use that language to describe the infidels, the unbelievers. Another phrase that shows up in Islamic writings are the people of the book to describe people who believe in the Bible as their preeminent religious leader, their religious form of scripture or text, as opposed to good-standing Muslims who believe that the Quran is above the Bible. So let's read these details. So this next paragraph is going to begin to deal with this topic of the Mahdi's targeted campaign against Jews and Christians. And remember, I'll flash this little graphic on the screen in post-production. Those of you who are with me in the live class right now, just play along. The, the graphic that you should be seeing on your screen right now in post is a graphic that shows a parallel between the three main Islamic religious figures on the left side of the screen and three main religious figures in biblical eschatology on the right side of the screen. And the one-run correlation reading from the top are on the top left we have the Mahdi, in Islamic circles, and you see the little arrow pointing to the right, that corresponds parallel one-to-one to the Antichrist in the Bible. The next one down in the middle of the list, the second one down, is the 
uh, it says Isa, I-S-A, that's the Arabic name for Jesus. And in Islamic circles, he's the junior partner to the Mahdi. He's the Robin to Islam's Batman in the dynamic duo as a example that I've used in the past. So Isa is the Islamic Jesus, and the arrow pointing to the right shows that his one-to-one parallel is the false prophet in the Bible. So that's the parallel uh, uh, figure there, the um, person. And then the last person on the lower left side of your screen is the a person by the name of Dajjal, D-A-J-J-A-L, which is a an Islamic figure who is an evil guy. He's a villain in their eschatology stories. He's a bad guy. He's a villain of the peace. And the arrow shows that the one-to-one correlation is actually Jesus Christ of the Bible. He's our Messiah. So... Using those figures, Islam calls them signs. I think they even call them major signs, if I remember. Using those three figures, we're focusing most of our energy in this Islamic topic on the Mahdi. Sometimes it's pronounced Mahdi, but I'm not 100% sure if it's always Mahdi. I think it might be Mahdi, which is the, the pronunciation I've been going with. Let's read about this particular figure and his persecution of Jews and Christians. Interestingly, these are Joel Richardson's words. Interestingly enough, Islamic tradition speaks much of the Mahdi's special calling to convert Christians and Jews to Islam, yet speaks very little specifically of conversions from other faiths. So there seems to be some concentrated effort in the Islamic worldview to focus on Jews and Christians. This seems to make a bit of sense when you remember the fact that the three religions are referred to as Abrahamic religions because we are all rooted in Abraham, our father. Going back historically, we, we would say Judaism and then Christianity and then Islam in that order of how the religions kind of appeared on the world scene and yet we all are rooted in abraham our father so that's why perhaps maybe there's some shared eschatology between the three religions some shared uh worldviews some some just some overlap a little bit here and there let's keep reading joel it says or he says it seems as though converting christians and jews to islam will be the primary evangelistic thrust of the Mahdi. The following quote, he says, from Ayatollah Ibrahim Amini clearly articulates this vision. So we're looking at some religious Islamic specialist uh, in uh, that's being quoted from, I don't know if he's a religious leader, I'm sorry, I don't know if he's a one of another imam i don't know if he's um just a, a historical uh person who uh studies islam but uh apparently he's got enough influence that it caught the attention of joel richardson to include him in the book here's the quote this gentleman says the mahdi will offer the religion of islam to the jews and christians and if they accept it they will be spared otherwise they will be killed so this goes along with what I talked about earlier, the kind of the forced conversion, the idea that it's our way or the highway, right? You've heard the saying, it's my way or the highway. Again, that fits with the Borg mentality. Resistance is futile. You either have to join us or you will be destroyed. So you have to be assimilated within our groups and you lose your distinctive identity. You join the collective. You join the hive mind. 
those of you who are Star Trek buffs, you guys know what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't watch Star Trek, you're probably lost to my little um, illusions here, my little examples. Joel continues, and of course, we cannot forget the infamous Hadith that has become a favorite of many Muslims anti-Semites. And again, the Hadith, I'm, I'm probably not getting the exact description of what this represents, but it's not the Quran, it's an extra Quranic reference or resource that was put together, collected by some of Muhammad's sayings or Muhammad's teachings, something to that effect. I'll, I'll, I'll flash a little definition of what hadith is on the screen in post-production, but just know that uh, it's part of forms part of the two kind of branch legs of theology and primary source of spiritual information that Muslims draw from when they're talking about the Quran and the teachings of Muhammad. So the Hadith is one of those. So there's this, this famous Hadith that many Muslim anti-Semites like to quote from. Again, Joel says, note that it is speaking specifically about, quote, the last hour. So Islam has their own highly specialized, detailed version of end-time events, eschatology, right down to the seven-year time frame. They've got a description. And I believe, as I interject before we read Joel Richardson's quote here, I believe that the reason that Islam has that built into their eschatology, their, in, their model of end-time events, which is what the word eschatology means, in case you were lost, I believe that one of the reasons they have that is because the writers of the Quran and the the compilers of the hadith materials actually borrowed from biblical resources. In fact, in one place of the Quran, I believe it is, or it might be the hadith, one of the hadith resources, there's actually a direct quote from the book of Revelation, which is really interesting. All right, let's read this quote. This is from, I believe it's from one of the hadith resources quote the last hour would not come unless the muslims will fight against the jews and the muslims would kill them until the jews would hide themselves behind a stone or a tree and a stone or a tree would say muslim or the servant of allah there is a jew behind me come and kill him but the tree Garchad, I'm probably butchering that Arabic phrase there, the, the tree would not say, for it is the tree of the Jews. So this is just to inform you of some of the details that are captured within religious Islamic writings and resources. I do not believe that these anti-Semitic sentiments are shared universally across all Muslims and those who follow after the religion of Islam. To be sure, many Muslims are friends and friendly towards Israel, friendly towards Jewish people and those who practice the Jewish religion, etc., etc., depending on which country you are talking about, because Islam exists in, in nearly every country in the world, just like Judaism does, then, or I think Islam exists in many, many more, obviously, much, much more than Judaism does, Islam is fast becoming the world's top religion, the world's largest religion. But to the degree that 
Muslims and Jews interact with one another, there's largely peace and amicable relationship between the two people groups and religions for the most part, at least on the surface level. So the particular sentiments that we read about are probably only reserved for the extremists, people who are radicalized, perhaps maybe, who would seek to come to the perspective where there can be no peace between these two religions. Now, unfortunately, once we reach the point in time of history where the Antichrist is in a seat of world power and he begins to have free reign and exert his influence over the rest of the world to the point where he starts to persecute Jews and Christians at the midpoint, at that point in time, his world power will already be recognized as radical. It will already be a radicalized form of, if it's Islam, it will be a radical form of Islam that that seeks to execute the words that we just read uh, in 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 um, to an extreme or to to exacting detail where Jews should be put to death and should be wiped out, etc. Because why? It's not really. Islam's hatred for Judaism, at least that's not what I suspect as a non-Muslim. I instead believe that it's driven by Satan's intense hatred for the Jewish people and for Israel and for genuine Christians and for God and for God's Messiah. That's really the driving force behind the anti-Semitism, not just within Islamic circles that will take place one day, but ultimately that's the core that drives all anti-Semitism in the world today, and anti-Judaism, right? You have to recognize that it's Satan's hatred for God's people, the saints, the holy ones, Israel, and her offspring, the Christians. It's Satan's intense hatred for God's people that drives people to have this irrational hatred towards the Jewish people. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. We've got about 10 minutes left in our study. Joel says, after commenting on this particular hadith, several Muslim authors will be quick to point out the very interesting fact that this particular tree, the, uh, I'm going to try it once again, it's, I believe it's um, Garkad or Garquad, I, I don't think it's Qua, I think it's Garkad, but I'll look it up later on and then see if I can pronounce it. But that particular tree, you can see the spelling there, G-H-A-R-Q-A-D. Um, these Muslim authors are quick to point out, apparently the boxwood tree is what Joel says. This tree is presently being planted in abundance by Jews in Israel. Right, that's kind of interesting fact. Joel goes on to say that the point is that this final holocaust is expected by Muslims to take place within the present state of Israel. Right? That's kind of scary. Because if you think about it for a long time, Israel didn't even exist as a people group after the expulsion from Jerusalem in, in the 130s of the, of the Common Era. And so it wasn't until the, you know, till God brought them back in the 1940s, what was it, 1948, when the state of Israel became recognized and was seen as a people group that would dwell in the land of Israel and have her own land once again. So it's the modern state of Israel that this eschatological aspect of religious writings within the Islamic circles is targeting. It isn't really ancient Israel, per se, that, that this prophecy was concerned with. I mean, you have to remember, when did Islam come to power? When did 
the Islamic Caliphate come to power? When did the Ottoman Empire come into world power and position? It was in the middle of what we call the gap, the church age in Daniel's prophetic 490 year time frame, right? The 77s. The time in which Islam came to power was when Israel was already outside of her land. She was already exiled. So the prophecies that we read about in Quranic circles and within the Hadiths that were recorded afterwards, they couldn't really have been focusing on Israel as a modern state because there wasn't a modern state. There were Jewish people that were living in and amongst different places in the Middle East, but not to the degree that we recognize them like today as the state of Israel. So the point that Joel brings up is that this final Holocaust, that Islamic prophecies are referring to is expected by muslims to take place within the present state of israel the present state of israel this of course he says corresponds to another very specific similarity between the biblical antichrist and the mahdi right the antichrist as we're going to read about later on in, when we get to the book of revelation studies his persecutions against the jewish people are prophesied to take place within a state of israel a people group not from daniel's perspective that had not yet been exiled but by the time we get to the apostolic scriptures and yeshua is warning israel and his disciples and, and the people who would read the apostolic scriptures about what's coming in the future yeshua eventually gave the details to john uh i'm sorry the 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 gospel writers and to paul and then to john the spirit of yeshua the holy spirit gave the details that would correspond with under, us understanding that israel would be exiled out of her land right after 70 ad's destruction of the temple the 130s and the the expulsion of the jewish people and the plowing under of jerusalem and the renaming of it to alia capitolina all of that would take place and result in a people group having to come back before the antichrist and his events would unfold so let's now begin to peel back some of the details about the military aspect of this religious ruler it's not all religions the point i'm trying to focus on now a military attack against israel and the establishment of the temple mount as the seat of authority we have to remember that the antichrist is not just a military leader in islamic circles perhaps he has a lot of military clout and a lot of military interest i'm sorry a lot of religious clout and a lot of religious interest you remember one of his nicknames in in islamic circles is the 12th imam and the word imam i-m-a-m refers to a religious leader well according to the biblical model the antichrist is not just a religious figure to be sure as i understand him his religious aspect is only going to take him halfway through the 70th week the seven year time frame up until that point he will allow religion other religions islam judaism christianity all the other world religions he'll tolerate them up to a point and then he'll turn on them and impose his own one world religion but it won't really be religion it will really be a form of despotism right a form of 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 a, a a total one world government that you, that just allows religion to be utilized kind of on a surface level it's not real devotion that he's that he's kind of after in that sense i mean yes the devil wants people to worship him but the point i'm trying to emphasize is that 
the devil seems to focus more of his energy on death and destruction and pain and suffering and anything he can do to cause not just God to suffer, he thinks that that's what's going on, but to ultimately cause people to suffer. And we do suffer under the devil's schemes and plans, right? He promises peace and joy and happiness, but he only brings death and pain and destruction, right? He never really uh, pays out, maybe temporarily, you, you you do get some of those payoffs, right? There's there's a there's a temporary payoff to sin, but it's just that it's temporary. So let's read about the military attack against Israel and the establishment of the Temple Mount as the seat of authority. We'll take a bite out of this. We may not finish this. Let me see how long this section goes since we'll have about four minutes left. Scrolling down through, scrolling down through. Yeah, I can already see that it's a lot, that it's a bit longer. So we'll just get started in this particular section and we'll pick this up again next week. So this is uh, Joel Richardson once again. The Bible teaches that the Antichrist, with his multi nation coalition, will attack Israel and specifically Jerusalem to conquer it. So he wants to set up his seat of authority there which as far as i understand will include a military presence there in jerusalem a, a religious presence in jerusalem but he'll probably have a good amount of his military machine hidden away somewhere right maybe in somewhere in turkey or somewhere in iraq or Iran or Russia or somewhere else in that ring of nations that kind of surrounds Israel a thousand miles in every direction, right? Which is largely Muslim controlled. So we read a, a quote here. It says, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. This is the Old Testament book of Zechariah, I believe. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people, that is, those who submit to Antichrist's rule, according to Joel Richardson, will not be taken from the city. And just as I mentioned, it's Zechariah 14.2. We have another quote from Ezekiel that we need to read here that reads, You, that is Gog, Ezekiel's name for the Antichrist, so you, O Gog, will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. So we're talking about, again, a campaign against Jerusalem. Uh, the Bible says, thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that, by the way, the phrase on that day is your clue to know that this is talking about the end time events that we would associate with the day of the Lord. Remember, I mentioned in previous teachings that when you're reading through Old Testament prophecies, when God wanted to signify that the events that he's speaking of that he's foretelling are going to either have a near far aspect a now and not yet fulfillment a partial and a total fulfillment where there's maybe a pre a what we might call foreshadow fulfillment within some form of exile on israel's part or persecution from a world power outside of israel like babylon or syria or the medes and the persians or the greeks the romans or someone like that we had a partial fulfillment but yet there is a total 
final fulfillment in the end of days, then the Bible will often signal this shift from the time of Israel when the prophet was writing to the end times, which in which we're living now. It'll signal this shift using, using terminology like on that day or in that day or at that time or uh, it'll specifically say the Lord's day or it'll come about in that day. So we have Ezekiel doing the same thing. It'll come about on that day. Which day? The day of the Lord, which is not really just one day, even though it uses the word yom there in Hebrew. The word day there contextually refers to a time frame. It could be 24 hours, could be could be a, a little longer than 24 hours. And in this case, the day of the Lord indicates the day of God pouring out his wrath upon the wicked people of humanity who have yielded their allegiance to the Antichrist. And so it's a form of punishment and a form of cleansing the earth of those of that wickedness of that day. So the day of the Lord. All right. So what Ezekiel is describing is that on that day, he's referring to on the day of the Lord or on the in the time of the end, which on a calendar would look like on the seventh on the seventh week calendar would look like something around the midpoint of the week or later. The the midpoint of the midpoint of the week, three quarters of the way in. So corresponding to the time of what I'm describing as the pre-wrath rapture or the uh the snatching away of the people of God and or the pouring out of God's wrath in the beginning of the intense uh, trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that we've read in the book of Revelation. This is what we call day of the Lord. So on that day, on the day of the Lord, uh, Ezekiel continues that uh, thoughts will come into your mind, speaking of God, speaking of Antichrist. I'm going to finish this paragraph and then we'll call it quits for this part of our study tonight since we're finished with our time frame. It'll come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan and you will say, "This is these are the thoughts of the Antichrist. These are the thoughts of Gog, another name for Antichrist in the Old Testament. That you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. Speaking of the Jewish people dwelling securely in the land of Israel, specifically Jerusalem. And why would they have security? Because three and a half years earlier, they signed a peace treaty with the Antichrist to have this non-aggression between them and their Muslim slash Arab neighbors. And so they're dwelling somewhat peacefully because the Antichrist has brokered this peace treaty. So it makes sense that I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those, Ezekiel says, who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and Ezekiel says, having no bars or gates to capture, spoil, and to seize, plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people, that is the Israelites, Joel says, that's his little insert there, the Israelites who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live, how? At the center of the world. That's Ezekiel 38, 9-12, according to the NA. ESB. So, as we're drawing our study to a close, what we're learning and what we've learned tonight is that the Antichrist is going to, at the midpoint of the week, begin to ramp up his persecution against Jews and 
Christians. He's going to seek to establish his headquarters in Jerusalem and to begin his worldwide persecution of Jews and Christians from Jerusalem, taking it over as his headquarters. He's going to throw off any religious ties to whatever world religion was being tolerated at that time, whether it be Islam or Judaism or Christianity or some collaboration of a coexisting type one world religion. And he's going to begin to use his military power to establish himself as the one world ruler, the one deity over all the earth, the one god of all the earth, implementing the mark of the beast, the the uh, one world monetary system, world more banking system, giving his full power to the ten nation coalition that he's already put together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're going to be reading more and more about these details of how they correspond with in parallel fashion, to the description of the Mahdi, the uh, premier Islamic world religious leader, who from their perspective is also going to usher in worldwide Islamic rule so that world peace can be established under the guise of a one world religion known as Islam. But that'll do it now for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to 
a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. We're going to take the next 30 minutes, which is the final 30-minute segment of our hour-long, hour-and-a-half-long live internet studies, and begin to look at this verse that we've been working our way through somewhat meticulously. The verse is Psalm 110, verse 1, and verse 5 as well. Let me bring those up on the screen first real quick. Psalm 110, verse 1, reads out of the NESB version of your Bible. You can see on your screen. Let me blow it up there for you. A Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until my, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's out of the NESB. And we can see on the right side of the screen, which I'll also enlarge, it says, Le David mizmor neum Yahweh ladoni shev limini ad ashit oivecha hadom le rag lecha. This is the verse in particular focus for us. And when we look to the English, we're really focusing on this particular clause, the Lord says to my Lord. When we look at the same passage in Greek, from two different renderings, on the left side of your screen is the Alexandrinus version of the Septuagint, and on the right side is the Vaticanus version of the Septuagint. They're nearly identical with some minor changes, so I'm just going to borrow the uh, the Alexandrinus on the left side. It says, To David Salmas, Apen ha kurios to kurio mu, kathu ek dezion mu, heos on tho, on tho tus ek thrus su, hupapadion to padon su. And the clause we're most interested in is this clause right there, Apen ha kurios to kurio mu, which is translated from the Greek as, says the Lord to the Lord of me, or to my Lord, is how we kind of smooth it out when we read the English. And so, what we're working from is a difference in interpretation from biblical Unitarians' understanding of this passage and the traditional Trinitarian understanding of this passage. Biblical Unitarian, being a non-Trinitarian Christian denomination, believes that the verse is speaking about a human Messiah, that David was being shown a prophetic look into the future at the human Messiah who would be born one day and then later on be exalted to sit at the right hand of very God himself. But nevertheless, he was not divine, he was human. He would have to wait until he was brought into the world through the womb of his mother Mary, who was also a human. So, Biblical Unitarian takes the belief that God the Father, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, God is the only God, and, there, and He's only one person. He exists as a single person. He does not exist as a triunity of person, persons. He's not triune. In their model, Jesus is fully human, although he is exalted and enjoys a special status as God's Messiah, being the only man to sit at the right hand of the very God himself, and therefore he has power from God, power to live a sinless life, etc., but the primary point is that he's not divine, he's not God incarnate, he's not deity, he's not the Son of God. Uh, born from uh, what do we what do they uh, how would they just say said he's not the word of God made flesh like John describes he is the thought of God made flesh he existed in the thought of God but not as the person of God next to God and truly God like we Trinitarians think and the Holy Spirit to them is just another name for God or the power that God 
sins to that he bestows to humans it's just another way to describe god in spirit as something or someone that is holy either way it's impersonal so that's their perspective and we're contrasting that i'm challenging that from the trinitarian perspective and uh, the resource that i'm drawing from is biblical unitarian uh, dot com on psalm 110 verse 1 which i have pulled up in your screen right now which you can go read the entire uh commentary their their explanation uh from their website at biblicalunitarian.com what we've been re, uh finding out is that there are holes in their logic one of their one of the glaring holes is that they are drawing heavily on the understanding that the masoretic hebrew which was preserved by the family of the masoretes the hebrew that shows up in our bibles as well the hebrew script they're drawing from the understanding that the Masoretes had a way of reading the Hebrew and pronouncing it vocally, including the un, un the unpointed vowels, the unpointed consonants, I'm sorry, the unvowel pointed consonants. They had a way of reading the Bible that allowed for, let me turn back over to the Hebrews uh, versions for a second, a way of allowing for an understanding of whenever we have the word Lord in our Bible, they had to choose between the word, the root word Adon, which is Strong's number 113. They had to choose between the corresponding Hebrew word Adoni, which um, let me show you on the on the right side of the screen, which is right here, Strong Strong's number 113 as well, I'm sorry, um, which is right there. They had to choose between this word Adoni, when without the vowel points, looks identical to Adonai, which is down in verse five here adonai al yimincha this word right there so when you look at the little symbols the little what looks like dots and dashes and little capital letter t's underneath the vowel uh, underneath the consonants you end up with two words that look identical let me flash this on the screen for you this is what it looks like in your vowel-pointed script. On the right side, you have Adonai, with the little vowel markings that indicate the Adon plus I-sounding vowels. And on the left, you have Adoni, with the vowel markings that indicate the Adon plus E sound in the final syllable. So Adonai, on the right, indicates God. It's a title exclusively reserved for God, capital A, D-O-N-A-I. And on the left, you have uh, lowercase a-d-o-n-i which is pronounced adon plus e or adoni and it nearly always refers to human superiors although context sometimes allows it to be referred to referring to god which something that biblical unitarian disagrees with but this is my graphic so i get to say what i believe it is both of these are translated as lord in your bibles sometimes it's capital l-o-r-d sometimes it's capital l lowercase o-r-d sometimes it's lowercase l-o-r-d but it should never be at least the adoni on the left side should never be capital l capital o capital r capital d because that word is reserved for indicating let me go back up to verse one that word should be used by the masoretes to indicate YHVH, Yod Hey Vav Hey, the tetragram, it's the name of God. And indeed, that's exactly what it does in the NHB version of the Bible right here when you have all caps Lord. It's telling you that you're reading Yod Hey Vav Hey in your text. Well, Biblical Unitarian wants us to believe that the Masoretic family carefully knew the distinction between Adonai and Adonai, and therefore 
they preserved this distinction for us in two ways. Number one, it was preserved in the orally transmitted pronunciation of these words before the little dots and dashes became a feature of the text, which didn't show up until either 400, 500, or 600 of the Common Era. In other words, hundreds of years, almost 500 years after the New Testament was being written and put together and utilized by Jesus and the New Testament writers. So, why is that relevant for our discussion as Trinitarians? Is because according to Biblical Unitarian understanding of the Masoretic traditions, which includes two aspects, right, two primary points, the oral transmission of the vowel pronunciation along with the inked-in version of the vowel points 400, 500, 600 years later than the first era, first century. What happened is, according to the Masoretes, this is the distinction between Adonai and Adonai. What Biblical Unitarian wants us to believe is that this is the authoritative way to interact with the Biblical text. But what they are losing sight of the fact is, their blindness, is that the Masoretic family, although it was utilized by God to preserve the Bible in an authoritative fashion in most of its aspects, Nevertheless, this did not prevent them from making unauthorized alterations and changes to the biblical text whenever they saw fit to keep their own personal understanding of God and His, and his being uh, in view. There are well-recognized and recorded over a hundred different places where the Masoretes purposely made emendations or changes or alterations to the biblical text in an effort to preserve their understanding of God and their understanding of humans interacting with God. Sometimes this shows up kind of harmlessly in the form of what we would today recognize as almost like glosses or paraphrases or shortened versions of longer words or simply substitutions of one word into another word, what we might call a, a polite uh, or an evasive um, substitution, a uh, um, um, a, a form of, I'm, I'm forgetting the long technical word, but um, for instance, the, the example I'm giving you that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is where the, it was, this wasn't the Masoretes that did this, but it was the, the, the Targumists who did this, those, those leaders and scribes who recorded the Aramaic version of the Hebrew as it was spoken in synagogues in the first century, since Aramaic was kind of the, 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 common tongue among Jewish people who had returned post-exile from Babylon, and they had lost a lot of their Hebrew as their mother tongue. It was only utilized in Hebrew in um, religious circles, and instead, Aramaic had become the more popular language, a sister language to, to Hebrew, to be utilized in everyday speech. Well, when the Bible was being recorded and written down in Aramaic, there were certain places and times when Hebrew said Yahweh or Adonai or something like that, and the Targumist didn't like the up-close personal interaction that men were having with God. God needed to remain transcendent, and man was getting too close and personal with God, so the Targumist substituted what we call um, uh, um, substitutions. I, 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 if the word comes to me, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. But they would insert 
a different word than what the text actually said. They would insert, they even created this figure known as the Memra, which is an Aramaic phrase to describe the word of the Lord. And so instead of saying God's name, God was interacting with people, they would say the word of the Lord interacted with people. How does this relate to what I'm referring to in the with Adoni and Adonai? Well, the Masoretes, borrowing from that kind of a similar concept of we can't have too many Adonais in the text. We can't have man looking at God because God is invisible. We can't have man describing God in one verse twice, right? Or something to that effect, like the Genesis 11 uh, aspect of, um, or the Genesis 19 aspect. I can't remember which verse it, chapter it is where uh, Yahweh rains down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh, right? I think it's Genesis 19. Well, the... Masoretes said, instead what we'll do, since it's since the vowels don't show whether it's Adonai or not Adonai, only context determines that, at places where we think it should not be Adonai, we'll make it reflect Adonai. And so David is shown this figure, a psalm of David, the Lord, which is Yahweh, speaks to this Lord and tells this Lord to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So obviously this second Lord is an exalted figure. But the question is, is this second Lord a divine figure? Is he a, is he a divine person that's sitting next to the first divine person, which is Yahweh? Remember, in Trinitarian models, there are three persons to God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, yet three persons. So for us, it makes perfect sense that David speaking under the Spirit, in the Spirit, would describe the Lord Father Yahweh says to my Lord, i.e. David's Messiah, David's Master, David's Lord, who is who? The, who, whom, who, whom is who? Who is whom? <laughs> Need to make sure I get that right. It is the Lord Jesus that the Holy Spirit is showing David in the future. But in David's day, David is seeing the Lord Yeshua sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But instead of saying it's the Lord Adoni, which is merely a title, an exalted title for a human, it's actually Adonai. So the Lord Yahweh said to Adonai Lord, which is the Lord Jesus. Which means, instead of stripping of him of his divinity, David was actually recognizing his divinity. But the Masoretes were a non-Messianic family. They weren't really heavily into highlighting the Messianic aspects of the Messiah, the divine aspects of him. To be sure, after the first century, when the Christians had already recognized Jesus as not just 100% God, but 100% man, Right, the Trinity had unfolded before their very eyes, and the mystery had been revealed by God Himself. Then the Messianic Jews and Christians and the, the Gentile Christians of the first century, who were already giving Jesus the divine status, were going back and looking at passages like here in the book of Psalms and recognizing that David was describing a divine Messiah. The Lord Yahweh says unto my Lord Adonai, not Adoni. But the Masoretes weren't having that. They were more with along the lines of rabbinic Judaism. And so, from their vantage point, as the keepers of the text, when the time came to ink in all those little dots and dashes like you see in, on your screen right now, they decided, let's ink it in as Adoni, stripping this 
Messiah of his divinity and putting him back down into relegating him, downgrading him into a human Messiah. Now, you're, you're saying, Ariel, that's a tall claim. Can you support that with scripture? Can you back it up? Well, what I've been demonstrating is that the Masoretic family, which the Biblical Unitarian is banking on, they make this tall claim that, well, Adonai always refers to humans. It never refers to God. Adonai is the designation for God. Adonai always refers to humans. And I challenged that last week by showing you that when we read through the Bible, particularly the historical accounts of the books of the kings, we have an individual by the name of Adonijah who's been given a name which is a composite of two of God's names. And it's not Adonai plus Yah, which is a shortened form, form of, of um, Yahweh. Instead, it's Adonai plus Yah. That's how it shows up in the Hebrew, Adoniyah, or Adoniyahu, if you want to read it that way as well. So, this composite name of Adoni plus Yah proves that Biblical Unitarian is making a gross overstatement when they say that Adoni always only refers to humans. Well, yes, Adonijah is a human, that I recognize, but his name is a composite of God is my Lord, or my Lord is God. Let me show you that to you um, in the... Where is my Strong's reference? Uh, I think this will work. Here we go. Strong's number one... I'm sorry. Yeah, Strong's number 138. Um, Adonayahu, my Lord is Yahweh. It is the name of several Israelites, but notice the name is specifically invoking the identity of God as my Lord. My Lord is Yahweh, or Yahweh is my Lord. Meaning, as we um, zoom in there, it's a combination of this word, Adoni, plus, oops, plus that word, Yah. So it's the two names for God, the short name of Yahweh, plus the word Adoni at the very beginning, which disagrees with what Biblical Unitarian was trying to say. So what we've been doing is finding out that as we're working our way forward, as a lot of review, what we're doing when we're looking forward is that there are passages in the Bible that begin to describe God using combinations of his titles, Yahweh, Elohim, Yah, and things like that, where Adon gets evoked once again. Instead of using Adonai always, like Biblical Unitarian wants us to think that the Masoretes always preserved. Instead, shortened forms, either Adoni, like I saw, or like we just looked at earlier, and Adoniyahu, or just Adon. Micah 4.13, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, and you shall beat in pieces peoples many, and I will consecrate to Yahweh covet and their substance to the Lord of all the earth. Now that's a little backwards reading, but if you just read it uh, smoothed out, like say out of the KJV, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. What you notice in in this English reading of Micah 4.3 is that the word Lord shows up two times. One time with all caps L-O-R-D and the other time with capital L only. And so what is that telling us? There's the unpointed version there. 
uh, we see the NESB version has the capital L there, and then the only capital L for the other one. What this tells us is that, is that it, there's two different Hebrew words that are underlying. So when we go back up into the Hebrew, what we find out, let me scroll down to those two words. I apologize, I think I passed them. Yep. What we see is that the first word right here, let me blow it up a little bit, is le Yahweh. In other words, unto Yahweh our God. Let me zoom it down a little bit, a little bit too big. Let me pause and interject for a second. Luke, are you still in the room? Let me know. Can you hear my wife sleeping in the background? When I talk, do you hear that? Is that coming out on the microphone? I can't hear it myself. You can't hear it? Okay. If you can't hear it, that means Skype can't hear it. But that doesn't mean that OBS can't hear it. So I have to go back and look at that. My noise canceling uh, features sometimes drown that out, and sometimes it has to open up my microphone to hear me. I mean, that's how the the the, the thresholds work. That's how uh, uh, the tools work. But when it opens up, that means some outside noise other than my voice comes through. It's just not as predominant when I'm not talking. But all right, thanks for letting me know. All right, let's keep reading. So when we look at this word in Hebrew on the left side of your screen, la or la, and then yhvh, so la donai or la Yahweh, uh, la Jehovah, if you want to say it that way, I say la donai. Um, we can see that it's the tetragram, it's a name that's characterized by Strong's number thirty sixty-eight, which we're used to seeing, but a little farther on. I'm sorry, this phrase uh, la la donai or la yahweh is represented in most bibles as all caps l-o-r-d but when we scroll down a little bit further the second lord in this passage is not what we're used to seeing in many other places like in psalm 110.1 it's not la doni with a capital l lowercase o-r-d instead it's la don or la adon so it's a composite of the preposition le, which is unto, or to, coupled with one of the names for God, which is Strong's number 113, Adon. The vowel pointing shows that it's Adon. So it's not Adoni, nor is it Adonai. It's simply Adon. Again, the point being is that most people would agree that context demands that this is Yahweh. This is not a human being. The context tells us that this is God Almighty, and yet the point I'm simply trying to show you is that it's not as it's not as simplified as biblical Unitarian tries to make it out to be, where they're saying, "Oh, just look at the Hebrew. If it says Adoni, it's not God," or something like that. If it says Adon, then it's not God. No, it's not that simple. Context drives our understanding of whether Adoni, Adonai, or Adon alone is God or another human. And so the point I'm trying to make is that when we get to Psalm 113, and we're going to see this when we start peeking at the New Testament, Yeshua himself gave us the authority to understand that David was talking about not just the human Messiah, but an exalted Messiah. Okay, and the New Testament writers followed suit with that understanding as well. So that's one reference there in Micah. We also see in Zechariah 4.14, let me drop down to the English renderings first. NASB says, Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Notice the word Lord there in the NASB is capital L only. The rest of the letters are lower. But the KJV, which 
many times will try to reflect YHVH using all caps. This time looks nearly identical to the NASB. Then he said these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So we would think from context that this must be talking about God himself. And, and indeed, it, it is God. Uh, when we, but when we go look at the original Hebrew, when we get down to the word who, where it says Lord, it's similar. Let me blow it up for you a little bit on the screen. It's similar to what we saw in Micah a moment ago. It's simply the word Adon which is Hebrew number 113, a Strong's number 113. And so, even though it's Adon, it's not Adonai, it's the root of both of those words. Remember, Adoni and Adonai are related. They are related because they're related in the root of this word Adon. The point that I'm highlighting is simply that the original Hebrew simply shows Adon, which forces us to understand the context being God himself. The context is driven by the phrase, the Lord of all the earth. So we know that it's definitely God. It is not some human ruler. It's not some human king. Um, I suppose in context it could be referring to a human king, but then the word earth there might have to be clarified as well. But I believe by context this is referring to God, because it talks about um, the, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of all the earth. And the context, I believe, is driven by, or driven to us to understand, driven to demonstrate to us that this is God himself. But interestingly, I'm sorry, I jumped a little farther. There's another verse I believe I should have brought into this uh, uh, reference. Let me see, is it this passage? Zechariah, maybe it's Malachi. Let me just kind of glance at my thumbnails for a split second and see if I have the verse that I wanted to highlight. There's one more verse. Okay, I don't see it here, so I'm not going to bring it in just yet. There's another verse where it talks about the Lord suddenly refer. Re, uh, I guess it's. I guess it is um, Malachi. It's not Micah. It would be yeah, Zechariah, Malachi. It is going to be Malachi. Give me a moment. Bear with me, uh, uh, you guys. I'm going to see if I can find the verse because it's relevant to our study. Uh, it is. Probably near the end of Malachi. And I'm reading, I'm reading. Okay, it's not chapter 4. Let me look at chapter 3. Okay, this works. Malachi chapter 3. Let's... Let's um, let's look at this. Verse 1 says, Behold, I'm sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me, and the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you light. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. If you notice just in verse 1, let me uh, duplicate that because we're going to look at the Hebrew. If you notice in verse 1, we have the word Lord with a capital L and then lowercase letters afterwards. And then we also have the word LORD in all caps a little later on into the verse. So we have two LORD renderings in this particular passage. And so, if we were only using Biblical Unitarian's logic drawn from Psalm 110 verse 1 and the Masoretic family of tradition of passages, we would tend to think that, without looking at the Hebrew just yet, we would tend to assume that the capital L-O-R-D in the, in the last part of the verse is definitely probably in the Hebrew Y-H-V-H. It's a very safe bet that it's all caps there because it's yod But the 
first capital L lowercase ORD, we don't know for certain in the Hebrew if this is going to be Adoni or Adonai or Adon. We have to wait to see, look at the Hebrew. But what are the implications based on biblical Unitarian? If they say, it, we'll, we'll tip our hand here in a moment, if it shows up as Adoni, then according to biblical Unitarian, this is a human figure. Behold, I'm sending my messenger, he will clear way before me, and this human Lord, whom you are seeking, Israel, will suddenly come to his temple? And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Israel, behold, he, this human Lord, is coming, says Yahweh. This is how Biblical Unitarian must read it, if it's Adoni. Uh, we Trinitarians, if it shows up as Adoni, we would then simply say that this is still Jesus, but notice that it talks about how the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Wait a minute, screech, put on the brakes. How is it that Malachi is indicating that the temple belongs to this human Lord? Maybe then, behold, I, the subject there is God, sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me, and the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to my temple. Maybe that's what Biblical Unitarian wants us to believe, that the temple is God's temple, but the Lord is the human Messiah, Jesus. But it should have said my temple because it's God as a subject. But what if it says Adonai? Well, if it says Adonai, well then we have two Adonais in the passage. We have Adonai being God in the lowercase, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And then we have Yahweh down to the lower part of the verse. Well, let's just see what it says. So, let's look at the... What do I want? Apologize. We want we want the Hebrew. I'm guessing. No, we don't want that just yet. Uh, yeah, let's let's do that. Um, behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord, which is Strong's number one thirteen, and the Hebrew has Ha Adon. So it's not Adonai. It's Ha Adon, which is the root of Adoni plus Adonai. Both of those words are rooted in this particular word, Adon. But notice it isn't Adonai. So, Biblical Unitarian would probably downplay it and say that this is a human leader or human ruler. And then, of course, when we drop down to the final part of the verse, it's, I'm 100% sure without even looking, yep, sure enough, the Lord, Strong's number 3068, Yahweh, right there down at the bottom. In fact, it's it's one of his longer titles, um, Yahweh Tzvaut, uh, Adonai Tzvaut, the Lord of hosts, Y-H-V-H, and then Tzvaut, uh, Strong's number 6635. So, the exercise here, what we're learning is that we can't simply make an assumption that if it doesn't say Adonai, if it says something else, then it automatically means it can't be God. Because the context of this passage is a little disturbing if this... Let me go back over to this version. A little disturbing if... Uh, let me see. Can I do PSB? That'll show me both, both Hebrew and... Yeah. Uh, a little disturbing if the temple that this Lord is coming to is not the Lord himself. This would mean that Malachi is predicting that the temple that existed in the first century that Yeshua showed up at belonged not to God, but belonged to Jesus himself. Isn't that what the verse says? Then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
this also indicates that the Jewish people are seeking this Messiah rather than seeking God, the Lord whom you seek. He will suddenly come to his temple or the temple of him. So, Biblical Unitarian finds himself in a bit of a quandary at this point with this particular verse. Is this Lord the human Jesus? If they say yes, well then the temple also belongs to this human Jesus. But that's not how the temple is described in biblical terms in the historical records, nor is it the way that it's described in the the gospel accounts. When Jesus goes and cleanses the temple, he drives the people out with a whip and he says, you know, you've made my father's house a temple, a den of thieves, and a place of robbers, etc., etc. He doesn't say, you've made my house. He said, you've made my father's house. So, over and over, Yeshua recognizes that the temple was his father's temple, not his own. And yet, Malachi says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So, biblical Unitarian, what do you guys do with that? We'll look at them up a different on a different day. But, as we're drawing our study to a close, what we're simply learning is that from looking at some of these passages, and we're going to get to the New Testament passages. I'll just kind of whet your appetite. When we start looking at the New Testament passages, we find that Yeshua recognizes his place among this prophecy. He is self-aware that he is the Messiah spoken of by David, his ancestor. And yet, he also realizes that because David gives this person in the prophecy a person a place of preeminence above himself then this lord spoken of in psalm 110 must be greater than david and yet jesus recognizes that he is david's ancestor or david's descendant i'm sorry david's descendant he is a son of david so using that quandary that seemingly contradiction or that paradox or this confusion, as it were, Yeshua decides to put this question to the religious leaders of his day. And so we begin to read in Psalm 20, uh, Matthew 22. We'll pick this up next week. The Pharisees starting back at, backing up to verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Verse 42. This is NESB version. What do you think about the Christ, right? The Messiah. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, Jesus responds, then, you know, if that's true, then how does David in the Spirit, right, meaning speaking of the Spirit, meaning it's not just David's own thoughts, but it's the Holy Spirit prompting David to write, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, and then Yeshua quotes the Septuagint rendering that we read earlier, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Therefore, verse 45, Yeshua concludes, If David calls this Messiah Lord, how is it he is his son? No one was able to answer him a word, and no one was able to offer him a word and answer, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him any more questions. So the question to Biblical Unitarian, if it's as simple as, well, the reason David called him Lord was because David was recognizing that he's the human Messiah who would be exalted by God and sit at the right hand of God, but he's not divine. Well, then, why then is he still recognized as the son of David 
and yet he is Lord over David. And this just begins to open up this idea that Yeshua realizes, and I'm saying this in closing, Yeshua realizes that he is, in fact, the human descendant of his ancestor David. Yes, this is true. But because David is speaking by the Spirit, and, rec- and uh, describes Yeshua as Lord, well then it must be recognized by Yeshua at this point in time. It's beginning to be unfolded before his eyes, or he already knew this by uh, the fact that he was his divinity was part of his dual nature. And parts of that divinity he drew from, and at other times he he suppressed, he he hid, he didn't he didn't utilize to its full potential. He 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 lowered himself, like Paul describes in uh, the book of Philippians, chapter two. Yeshua begins to reveal a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more that he is this divine figure that was foretold in the in the prophets of old, who would rule Israel not just as a human but would rule Israel as very God walking among human beings. His origins predate his own birth in Israel in the first century, is the point I'm trying to make. And so, this is just the, this part of the equation. If we begin to let the Bible speak for itself in other places, we will begin to see that Yeshua describes his origins as predating not just David, but even going back to Abraham's day, when we get to the book of John, where he talks about, you know, before Abraham was, I think it's like John 8, 58 or so, before Abraham was, I am, right? The, uh, the famous I am statements. So we'll begin to unpack this in time, but that'll do it now for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. And let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I'm so thankful that your words have been preserved for us, even if they were carried along by imperfect men who at times had their own agendas. Nevertheless, the word of God was not lost to us, and the central points and themes and messages of the Bible were preserved for us, even if the little details here and there sometimes got obscured by imperfect humans who are flawed in their own theology. Thank you, Father, that your spirit carried your words along and that it's trustable, it's reliable, even in in the transmitted autographs of Hebrew and Greek that we have for us. Uh, what ends up happening when men make mistakes is we simply end up with variants. And so sometimes the variants were on purpose, where men altered the text, and other times the variants were simply scribal errors, where they didn't mean to make a mistake, they just copied it the wrong way, and then we ended up with a variant version of a text. And so either way, Lord, you still preserve the central message of your word. Even through the variants, we can still come to a a conclusion that your words are trustable, reliable, and that they are the very words of life that we will uh, build our lives upon. So thank you for preserving your words. Bless us, Lord, as we continue to study these topics of eschatology, as we're moving closer and closer to these end-time scenarios and these very dark and dangerous days that are in front of us. Give us strength, give us faith, give us a um, a resolve to not lose faith in you, but to continue to keep our trust in you and to keep our eyes focused on our Master Yeshua so that we can make it in these last days. We'll be careful to give the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua, O Main.